Let's turn together, please, to Matthew chapter 21. We will spend our time together today in the 21st chapter of Matthew's gospel, and we will continue both for Good Friday and for Easter, for Resurrection Sunday, to focus on Matthew's accounts of the Holy Week, of the Passion Week, as we reflect on all that Jesus accomplished on our behalf to atone for our sins and to give us the hope of eternal life. I want to thank Aaron Birchwell for making sure we had the uh, palm fronds. Is that the appropriate term, Aaron? So thank you for making sure we had those and for decorating behind me. Um, As I look behind me, I see a little bit of sun, maybe. Somebody said last time I preached that every time I got loud, the sun came out. So I don't, <laughs> I don't know uh, if, if Jesus was uh, up in heaven pushing a button or not, but uh, I'm, I'm sure not. For those of you who don't know, I'm sarcastic. So please don't come after, to me afterward and say that you're being irreverent. I'm just being sarcastic. All right. Um, you never know. So let's spend some time now reading God's Word as we uh, look at Matthew chapter 21, Fritz read for us earlier, verses 1 through 11. And I want to pick up in verse 12. So in verses 1 through 11, you know the story well. The Lord Jesus rides this humble beast into Jerusalem. In a sense, he was offering himself as their king. But of course, they didn't understand. They wanted to mold him into the image of a king that they wanted. They wanted political liberation. They wanted power. Jesus didn't come to offer them that. He was a much stronger king than that. He had created everything and was owed everything. But in the first advent of Jesus, his incarnation... He primarily was not offering himself as a conquering king. That will come in his second advent, but primarily in his first advent, he was offering himself as an atoning substitute, as a savior. So in some senses, the crowds spoke better than they knew. If the word Hosanna means something like, please save even if they meant something like, please save us from Roman domination, please save us from servanthood in a sense. It wasn't as bad as it had been back in Egypt, but in a sense, they weren't free and autonomous anymore. Their cries for salvation were words spoken better than they knew, for indeed they did need salvation, which is exactly why Jesus came. And so because... They didn't understand who he really was, supreme king, and in just a few short days, suffering servant, he is going to have to speak and teach and clarify so that at least later on they would understand. So we pick up on that in verse 12 now. Please listen to God's holy word. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. 
He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. So the cries from the triumphal entry continue now with the children. The leaders were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. He went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death 
and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. May God bless to us the reading of his holy word. The Jewish week rightly begins on Saturday. It's their day of rest. It's their day of devoted worship. After the day of rest, Jesus comes into the city as we know it, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, in a sense to offer himself to the crowds, though he knew full well how they would react to him. He As John tells us in the second chapter of his gospel, Jesus knew what was in the heart of men. On Monday, he comes back and cleanses the temple, curses the tree. Tuesday, he comes and finds the tree having withered, and the disciples comment on it. Wednesday is a bit of a quiet day. Not a lot is said to us about Wednesday. Thursday, of course, is the Last Supper. He would be arrested that evening put on trial sometime after midnight on Friday, brought before several high officials, both Jewish and Roman, on Friday, and then crucified in the morning. He would be in the grave for the rest of Friday, all of Saturday, and of course we know the rest of the story. He would be loosed from the hold of death and released and raised that he might conquer sin and death. This is a brief overview of the Passion Week, the Holy Week that we are now in the midst of. But for this second day of the week, Sunday being our first day of the week, but the Jewish second day of the week, Jesus enters into the city. I've entitled our time together today in the Word, The Expectation of the Christ. And I mean this in a couple of ways. First of all, that the people, the Jewish people had expectations of what the Christ, another word for the Messiah, what the Messiah would be and what He would do. But I mean this in a second way. The Christ Himself, Jesus, had expectations. Not so much from the people, for again, He knew full well who they were and what they craved from Him, but the expectation of what lay in front of Him both in His passion, His dying on their behalf, and the glory that would come to Him for being the suffering risen servant, and the glory that would flow to those who would receive Him by faith and become children of God. So, there was expectation from the crowds, misplaced expectations, and they would be deeply dissatisfied and frustrated. But there was also expectation of Jesus Himself who saw beyond Sunday. And maybe this will help frame how we should 
as God's people look at Palm Sunday. We want to praise. Why do we want to praise? Because we want to be happy. We want all to be well. And when all is well, we feel like praising. But there's something about Palm Sunday and the way that the Gospels present it that don't really let us go there and certainly don't let us stay there. Reading about Palm Sunday in context leads us to the conclusion that the praise was short-lived. For the voice of exaltation that, that cried out, Hosanna, salvation has come. As I mentioned earlier, it would be the same voices that would cry out just a few short days later to crucify Him. And that they were very much okay with His blood being on their heads. Palm Sunday helps us feel the desire that all will be well, that we can be reconciled to God and to man, vertical and horizontal restoration. We crave that. The problem is, as fallen image bearers, is that we crave it on our own terms, And that's the other side of Palm Sunday, because by the time you get to the end of it, you don't feel so good. So so Jesus probably taught most of the stuff that we see here in Matthew chapter 21, probably on Tuesday. Cleansed the temple probably Monday, taught these things probably up through chapter 23 on Tuesday. So we're going to cover those few days together. So begins with praise. Praise on on the crowd's terms. And then by the time you get to the middle of the week and certainly the end of the week, it it has turned entirely. The mood has shifted entirely. So so why do people want to praise? Why do we come together today as those 2,000 years after the events wanting to praise? Because we want to live in a a setting, in an environment to, to believe and feel that all is well. But the Gospels themselves don't allow us to get there and stay there on our own terms. So the expectations of the crowd were, were misplaced, as we see in Jesus' teaching, and the expectations of the Christ, and this is the beautiful irony of the whole thing, would overcome their misplaced expectations. He would not allow himself to just fit their mold And because he went forward with what he and his father had planned before the foundation of the world, their deepest expectations that they couldn't even articulate were actually met, which is, my friends, really the true beauty of this text. So it's important for us year after year to go through the rhythms of Holy Week, to feel this yearning for all to be well. Palm Sunday, but then to feel what Monday and Tuesday would have felt like, to feel that we still trend toward self-righteousness, we still 
trend toward wanting to fashion Jesus like Plato into the image of what we want him to be. Then we enter Passover and Good Friday, and we feel the cost of our rebellion. But then we look expectantly towards Sunday because we know it happened. We don't have to pretend it didn't. And we look forward to celebrating the resurrection, Jesus' powerful and gracious conquest over sin and all of its implications. We go through these rhythms. One author has said that historic Christian worship forms us on the level of our loves, not just our, not just our minds, but our affections. So when we go through the movements of Holy Week, Our loves, our affections are addressed and shaped. The same author has said that discipleship, growth in holiness, growth in Christ-likeness, discipleship, we might say, is a way for us to curate our hearts. Like a curator of a museum, he, he takes care of all the artifacts. Discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate our hearts, to be attentive to and intentional about what we love. So that's why we come back to these rhythms year after year to address our affections and then to find them shaped and met in Christ. So first of all today, Jesus Christ does not offer Himself as a temporal token Savior. I spent nearly a decade in a city in South Carolina. There's many things I love about that city. It's near the mountains. I love the mountains. It's near the beach. I love the beach. There's great food. Uh, There's great wardrobes. Everybody down there is really dapper. I I wore bow ties back in the day. Maybe I'll break one out one of these days. Uh, it's, It's more sunny than the dreary Ohio Valley is. It seems like there's always things to do, places to go, people to see. The longer I lived there and the more I interacted with people, began to come to the realization that, that people's church membership identity was incredibly important to them. But often, not always, but often I found that some of those same people, as you spent time with them, had zero fruit in their life, which would indicate that they actually knew, let alone treasured, Jesus at all. But it was really, really important for them to indicate which church they belonged to or which church their grandfather had pastored. I grew up in the Midwest, so after those years, we came back to Ohio. It's not quite the same as living in the South, but in a sense it is. For the most part, if you interact here in these suburban communities and you say to people, what you did. You tell people what you did over the weekend. I went to a soccer game in the morning, and then we had baseball practice in the evening, and then we went to church on Sunday. They're not going to look at you like they're nuts, like you're nuts. Most people here in the Midwest are pretty pleasant. They're, they're pretty affable and pretty kind. In fact, they might even say to you, well, we, we have a church that we belong to. Now, Often you'll meet people who are genuine believers in the community. They really love Jesus, and that's wonderful to hear. But, but very often the same people who are saying these things, they don't live for Christ at all during the week. They have no regard for Him and certainly don't embrace Him as Savior and Lord. But, but there's something about this, this token notion of belonging to a religious institution 
So we can confuse our, our devotion to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord with, with church membership. I think perhaps the way it shows up most in our, our particular setting is that most people want to be moral. They want to be at least thought of as moral. Now, now what they do behind closed doors, we can only guess at. But at least they want to come off as being devoted to some system of morality. And Judeo-Christianity offers a, a system of morality. It's interesting as I interact with friends in the community. We have lots of friends in the community who really aren't Christians at all. But they're really, really serious about being perceived as being good people. Do you run into that in the community in which you run? They, they may not really see their need for, for righteousness outside of themselves, which can only come from Jesus, a very Christian notion, in fact, the Christian notion. But, but they care about being perceived as moral. It might affect the way that they vote. It might affect the way that they use some of their money. It probably affects the way that they do some of their parenting. But for them, this, this Judeo-Christian identity is, is a bit of a cloak because they want to come off well. If, if we Midwesterners want to be anything, we want to be pretty good neighbors. Now, we may not really know each other and like each other, but we at least want to get along. That's what Midwesterners do. But as we try to take verses 1 through 11 and see them in our context, we struggle fundamentally with the same things that these Jewish people struggled with in the first century. They wanted all to be well. They wanted to, to get along. They wanted to, to be secure. Rome dominated them. Pilate, who will show up in just a bit, was put there to govern them, and they didn't like that. They, they knew they were God's special covenant people, and they wanted the shackles of Roman empirical domination to be, to be done away with. They wanted to self-govern. The people here in this context were, were actually a pretty fearful people. I think they were fearful for a couple of reasons. They were fearful, number one, because politically they weren't autonomous. They were afraid of the nations around them. In fact, much of Israel's history was marked by such fear. But they were afraid in a more subtle sense as well for the very Pharisaic leaders that, that dominated the culture, that told them how they were to live, led them into a constant spirit of fear. By this time, the religious leaders of the day had codified, made rules for everything, everything imaginable. And the people knew full well that they couldn't keep up appearances as well as the religious leaders did. But the message the religious leaders were sending, the messages were this, do all the right things all the time and then God will love you and we will accept you. The problem is nobody can do that. Later on, Jesus will say about those religious leaders that they are like whitewashed tombs. It's like going to a cemetery and seeing a very 
impressive gravesite, but inside, you know, it's full of rotten bones. So these people were afraid, they were unsettled, and they saw Jesus, and according to John's gospel, because he had just raised Lazarus from the dead, and that news had begun to spread around the environs of Jerusalem because they saw him as a miracle worker and a teacher who had some level of authority that perhaps he could come in and deal with their fears, their fears of not being able to keep up appearances, of of not being able to to deal with their problem with God vertically and their problems with each other horizontally. And politically, he could cast off all the domination of Rome and offer them some sort of salvation. So it is in this sense they cry out, you are the Savior. But I I think behind it, there, there perhaps is this questioning in their minds, are you the one who can deal with all these fears that we have? And so they cut down branches and lay their cloaks on the road. But it's interesting, he doesn't come to them on some Arabian steed. His generals are not arrayed around him in a series of chariots. He's not wearing a crown. He doesn't lay out for them, like on a stump somewhere, his his plan to achieve for them political independence. He doesn't just come to them and tell them how he's going to give them their best life now. He comes on the foal of a donkey, the most humble beast of burden one could imagine. And though they are crying out for salvation, and though they desperately needed it, they didn't want it on his terms. And so he he doesn't allow himself to fit their mold. And so for us today, he doesn't offer himself to us as a temporal token savior. Is it appropriate, let's, let's bring this back to our context, is it appropriate for us to love our country? Uh, I just hit both sides, right? <laughs> the answer is yes, it's appropriate for us to love our country. It's okay to be a patriot. But is America our salvation? To which you should answer, no way. It's appropriate for us to work hard, to save money, to be responsible, to be good stewards, to provide for our children, and if we do well enough, maybe a couple of generations beyond that. But is it appropriate for us to to worship capitalism? And the answer is no. Far too often we conflate mistakenly. We, We confuse Jesus and who he offered himself to be and the gifts that he's given us. Would you have wanted to grow up in the Soviet Union in the 1950s? And the answer is no. So I'm glad that I live in this age and I'm raising my children in this age, but but my money and my political ideology is not my salvation. And Jesus will not allow himself to be conflated together with these things. You see this, right? So the cry for Jesus to be a Savior is is a misplaced cry. They had deep longings, but even they couldn't 
tap down into what they actually were, and he will not allow himself to just meet temporal needs. He will not be a token savior. He will not be one more God on our proverbial totem pole. And so he comes as a humble servant for though he will eventually come on a steed as a conquering king and put down all opposition to himself in his second advent, his second coming, his first advent was a mission to lay his life down on our behalf. We'll get more to that in just a moment. So Jesus Christ does not offer himself as a temporal token savior. Secondly, Jesus Christ indicts the faithless and the self-righteous. So not only does he not allow himself to fit their mold, he actually, he actually goes on the offensive. So he comes into the temple, and he drives out those that were selling animals so they could be sacrificed at Passover. Now, people needed this service. People came in from all around to Jerusalem for Passover. And because they were traveling a long way, many of them needed to buy their lambs and other animals there. They needed to be able to change foreign currency for for currency of the land and then be able to buy what they needed. The service itself was not a problem. The motivation of the heart was the problem. The money changers, those who were selling the animals, they were profiting off of this. And not only that, they were doing it in the very place where God had set it up to to meet with the people, where his presence would be known in the temple. Thus, Jesus' words in verse 13, my house shall be called a house of prayer, house of worship, but you make it into a den of robbers, like a cavern of booty that has been taken unjustly from those who have come in for worship. And not only this, he heals the blind and the lame that come to him in verse 14, so he's, he's actually cleansing the house of God for worship. He's healing those with deep needs. But notice in verse 15, the chief priests and the scribes, they saw the wonderful things that he did. Remember who writes this? Matthew was a tax collector. A heart transformed here. He saw these things as wonderful. And the children are crying out, Hosanna, son of David. You are the son of David. You're the only one who can save. And they were, according to the end of verse 15, not just mad, they were indignant. This, this led them to bloodlust. And they can't even understand it. And so they say in verse 16, do you hear what they're saying? In other words, you need to shut them up because what they're saying about you being the Savior, that's blasphemous. Jesus says that the young ones spoke better than they knew, certainly better than their religious leaders, according to verse 16. He departs from there. He curses the fig tree. Verses 18 through 22, Matthew condenses this into one occasion. It probably happened over the course of two days, according to Mark's gospel. This signifies that though God expected his covenant people to bear fruit, the fruit of repentance, turning away from sin, and the fruit of faith, representing him to the nations around them and drawing their attention to him as the one true God, that they were fruitless. This was the season when the leaves were just coming out in the fig trees. And so he sees this fig tree that is leafed, and he says, look, 
this fig tree is about to bear fruit. For not long after the green leaves came out on the fig trees, green fruit would accompany it. But this tree had not yet had its fruit come out. And he is, in a sense, implying this is what, this is what the Jewish leaders in particular, but, but the Jewish people generally are like. You look at them and you think there would be fruitfulness. Centuries of covenant belonging. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 9. To them belong the patriarchs and the covenant. They had all the privileges imaginable. But of the history of the Jewish people is anything. It's a record of them constantly forgetting their privileges and turning towards sinfulness. Autonomy, rebellion. And Jesus comes as a king, truly. And he is speaking with authority and saying, as I survey my covenant people, and in particular, their leaders, I would expect that by this point in their covenant history, they would have tender hearts and they would represent me to the world. But this is not the case at all. The religious leaders come and ask him several things, in particular in verses 23 and 24 about his authority. Where do you get this authority to speak like this and do these things? He points them back to John. God had sent John as an authoritative voice, primarily to prepare the way for the Messiah. He asked them a question which puts them in quite a conundrum. Did John's authority come from heaven or from man? Because they feared the crowds, they would not say it was from man, which by implication would mean it had to have come from from heaven if John was able to do these things, but they couldn't go there. Because if they went there, then they were admitting their own hard-heartedness. So Jesus says, I won't tell you by what authority I do these things, verse 27. And then he gives them two parables. The parable of the two sons. The first son was told to go out and work in the master, the father's vineyard. At first he has a stubborn heart and says, I won't, but then he goes. The second son relents and says, I will go, Dad, and then he doesn't. Which was the more faithful one? Those who were outwardly conforming or those who were inwardly conforming? Once again, pointing to the hearts of the Jewish leaders and to the people generally that there was, in some sense, outward conformity. Remember, this is Passover time. Plenty of religious conformity, but no inward transformation. Then he tells a second parable, which we'll focus on for just a moment. The second parable, also about a vineyard, reminding us of Isaiah's prophecy where God says that essentially Israel is like a vineyard, and he has provided for this vineyard all that she needed to flourish. The landowner sent servants to talk to the tenants to make sure that he got his recompense. This often happened in the environs of Israel. A foreign landowner would buy a piece of property and lease it out to farmers, but then he would expect returns on his investment. But the tenants beat the servants and even killed some of them, and then he sent more, and they did the same to them. This reminds the readers and the original audience that God had provided voices, leaders, reminders to His covenant people. 
Those for whom he had provided so much, he, he sent reminders to them, come back to me, follow me, treasure me, but, but they killed them. People like the prophets, for instance. But as you follow the, the mood of the story, this landowner is gracious and hopeful, and so he doesn't send more servants, he sends his, his best messenger, his very representation, his own son. And when the, when the tenants see the son, they don't just kill him. They feel like if they kill him, they can actually get all that they want, which is to have the kingdom on their own, which is exactly what the Jewish leaders wanted. They wanted power. They wanted adulation. In a sense, they wanted to be worshipped as God. And Jehovah, Yahweh, was just a token to them, a means to an end for their own self-aggrandizement to be worshipped as the end rather than the means to an end. And Matthew speaks well in verse 45, for the Pharisees understood that he was speaking about them. They had taken the privileges of their position and used them for self-worship. And of course, very accurately, God had sent His Son and the person of the Lord Jesus to come and proclaim His Word and to rescue His covenant people from their sinfulness. And yet, though they could not mistake that His authority was from heaven, even much more than John the Baptist, they in just a few short days would put Him to death. But their wrath and their ignorance and their sinfulness would not have the final word, my friends. Jesus Christ does not offer Himself as a temporal token Savior, and He indicts the faithless and the self-righteous. But the good news of this passage is that Jesus Christ will save those who receive Him on His terms. Notice what Jesus says in verses 32. In verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors, greedy ones, and prostitutes, those who sold themselves, the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. He speaks of this concept, this metaphor of of a cornerstone or a capstone If it falls on God's enemies, we'll crush them. Those who will not come to Jesus on His terms, not just as a temporal token king, but sovereign Lord of all and suffering servant on the back of a colt of a donkey who will lay his life down for them in just a few short days. If you will not receive Him as as sovereign king of all, and suffering substitute, then the alternative is that you will be crushed for your sinfulness and your willful rebellion. But if you will see yourself as no better than a tax collector, a greedy person who for a long time, like Matthew who wrote this, this is why it was so important to him, a greedy person for who for so long has been, has been using every opportunity in life to make much of yourself, 
to pursue self-worship, self-aggrandizement, if, if you can, can see that that's been your course and that has led to nowhere, and that Jesus alone offers you life and treasure, then you can be saved. If you can see yourself like a prostitute, one who in a spiritual way has committed years and years of adultery, turning away from your creator and your covenant God. If you can see yourself like that, having pursued other gods, other lovers, but instead see Jesus as the one who renews you to God, who alone can bring you true satisfaction. If you can see yourself like a tax collector and a prostitute and see Jesus as your remedy, then you're no longer going to see him just as a token temporal savior, but one who can save you deep down, who can deal with your deepest cravings that perhaps you haven't even been able to put your finger on. And when you see him as such, and you turn to him, relenting in faith and devotion as king and savior of your heart, then if you will receive him on his terms, he will save you. And so I say to you today, you must see yourself as a desperately needy, wicked person who has no remedy for yourself. And Jesus cannot be another deity on your totem pole. You must turn to him in abandoned faith. And if you will, he will save you gladly. For those of us who have already trusted Jesus, who who have turned to him in faith, let us remember who we were. Palm Sunday gives us a great opportunity to to feel the the desire for all things to be well, but to remember that it took Good Friday before we could get to Sunday and resurrection. Jesus laid his life down to redeem tax collectors and prostitutes like you and me. So what do we need every day, my friends who have trusted Jesus? What do we need? We need to remember that he is our sovereign king who rightfully owns everything that we are. But he was much more than this. He he laid his life down as the son who knew full well what his mission would end in, death, abandonment, and rejection. But he went through that, death, abandonment and rejection so that we could be sons and daughters. So may we remember the gospel of Jesus. And and this week gives us such a beautiful opportunity to do that, that the longing for all things to be well has been satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let us move through Holy Week with expectation, with meditation, with humble, thankful hearts. And so I say to you, as we walk away from this passage, Jesus Christ will not allow himself to be a temporal token savior. He indicts all faithlessness and self-righteousness, but he will save all of those who come to him on his terms. Thank God for the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now by your spirit, may your word be plain to us. May our minds grasp it and understand it, and may our hearts embrace it. Do all that 
in every heart which is needed that you might receive the glory that you are due and that we might receive the joy that we so desperately desire. And we pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.